Welcome back to Calvary Life, a podcast for the members of Calvary Baptist Church and anyone else interested in local church life. I'm Charles Uptane. Hey, I'm Paul Thompson. And uh, today we want to spend a few minutes, uh, uh, maybe this is sort of kind of like a life group uh, trainer training meeting. Um, what I mean by that is uh, what we do on with our life groups every week, our small groups, is, is a sermon-based curriculum. And so uh, whatever Pastor Paul preaches on Sunday, uh, the next Sunday morning, which is when most of our small groups meet, even though we do have a, a, a few groups that meet through the week, um, they will discuss uh, the sermon, discuss um, text from it and that kind of thing. And so this past week, yesterday for us, as we record this, um, Pastor Paul dealt with atonement. Uh, and with that, um, uh, really gave us some, I would say, some some pretty uh, deep stuff to think about at times, uh, but I was very pleased with how the the folks in the in the congregation accepted it um, and some conversations I heard it afterwards. So, uh, Paul, I, I appreciate that. And just want to give you an opportunity to speak to it some more, maybe give our life group leaders a couple of, of pointers, or not maybe pointers, but just maybe clarification on a couple of things you said, especially towards, um, you know, I know you may not like the term, but limited atonement when we look at that. So uh, just whatever you want to say towards it. You know, I kind of think of the original intent or one of the original intents in our podcast when I originally envisioned these was to be able to offer something like a, a Monday morning epilogue. There are always more things to be said in a Sunday morning message. There are always more things to be considered, questions that arise and what ifs and what abouts. And of course, as you mentioned, a lot of that gets discussed, Lord willing, hopefully in our discussion-based um, sermon-centered uh, life groups, but certainly this one stirs up a lot, and this is a this is a subject that I guess maybe we should qualify even going into that we're probably not going to resolve in a 20, 30 minute podcast. I mean, yeah. people have been debating this for hundreds of years, and even today, people hold very strong positions on this. So I kind of want to say as a beginning point, this ought not ultimately to divide us, but just because something that we believe how we interpret Scripture can potentially be divisive also doesn't necessarily mean that we should avoid it. We shouldn't uh, fall into the habit, the pattern of avoiding difficult things and really digging into the scriptures. I got a text today about the message and just some questions and some appreciation. And and uh, I said, well, I hope it's encouraging you to think and hope it encourages you and others just really to dig in because I think we do have to we do have to decide. That's part of our responsibility to look and consider. Well, you mentioned the the term limited atonement. And as I was putting that message together, and maybe some people might be skeptical of this, in this series we're doing on the second part of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53, I really did not in, intend in the beginning to to delve off into some serious theological points. Uh, obviously, it's theological to the to the nth degree. The atonement of Christ is the great theology of of Scripture. What Christ has done for us to save us, um, but to make some specific applications of. But the text just seems to beg it. And so we yeah. were talking about you know the text speaks of by His stripes we were healed. In what sense did the atonement provide healing? Because a lot of pop preachers today, particularly prosperity gospel preachers, grossly misapply this text to all sorts of physical healing and sicknesses. So we dealt with that as a is the teaching of the atonement, does it include all of our healing? Is that God's intent that we not have any sicknesses or disease? And my point was simply, Christ did not become sickness for us. He became sin for us. And sin is what separates us from God, not sickness. And so these are two different things. Does God ultimately deal with all sickness, with all disease? 
all infirmity, pain, suffering, etc., all brokenness brought about by sin? Yes, absolutely. That's the ultimate great news of the atonement, that we get to be with God in heaven one day, um, in the new heavens and the new earth, and everything will be perfect. Everything bad becomes untrue. Everything good becomes true. And, and so we know that. But we also talked about the issue of not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, you know, all sins. So in what sense does the atonement apply to all people? So, you know, that's really the question. And of course, if you're looking at that, maybe that sort of classic description, those five points, I think there are a lot of them are misnomers. They create a lot of confusion. One of those is that L and that tulip, if you're familiar with it, limited atonement. And I think it's a bad phrase. I think, for one, it puts people in defensive all automatically. In what way can the love of God be limited? In what way can the power of Christ's sacrifice be limited? And in, in what way can the glory of God displayed on the cross be limited? I think it's a bad term, and I think it's misleading. But ultimately, what we have to understand is the question is not about... Is there sufficient power in the work of Christ on the cross to save all who believe? I think that's an absolute certainty that we all should affirm, whatever, whatever evangelical stripe you hold. I think the, the, the real question at play here is, what was God's intention in the death of Christ? What did yeah. he intend to do? Not was he, what was he able to do or sufficient to do, but what did he intend to do? And then the question to follow up with that is, was he successful in doing it? And so, in a sense, I think we all limit the atonement to some degree unless you're a universalist. You know, some of you may remember Rob Bell years ago who gained some popularity and then notoriety, but ultimately defaulted to universalism. His misunderstanding of the love of God portrayed in Scripture led him to a position that said the atonement of Christ must necessarily atone for the sins of everyone in the same way. Well, if you... Unless you're a universalist, you're going to limit it in some way. Who provides the limitation? Does the work of God on the cross through Christ potentially atone for the sins of anyone? And so knowing that all are not saved, who limits it? We do. And our sovereignty, our unbelief, our rejection of, etc. Or does God, by his intentions, specifically apply it to those that he has determined to save? Um, will God save all those that he has determined to save? And so that really is the challenge, I think, of the discussion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I guess for me, you know, you even look at the words of Jesus on the cross where he said, it is finished, you know, and, and you think about that is, is what, in what way did he say that and mean that, um, you know, uh, and to me it's a, in some ways it's a time issue. Um, and, and that can get really a lot more, um, uh, I guess, confusing and, and bigger than I can even imagine in my mind to figure out uh, being above time like God is and us in time and when things happen and, the, and all those things. And so it really just comes down to uh, trusting in, in, in God's sovereignty in one way. And also, like you said, is, was it a, uh, did it finish it at that time, I guess is my point to that. You know, I reference back to um, one of my favorite theologians I used to be able to say until just a couple of years ago, who I think is our greatest living theologian, but now past J.I. Packer, who gives some alternatives. You know, we, he said he's, we know um, personally, we know from Scripture, from experience ourselves and from Scripture, that not everyone is saved. I don't think many Christians argue that. I don't know any that do, actually. So he says the only possible alternatives to that are, A, either actual universalism, which I just spoke of, 
or B, hypothetical universalism, that Christ's death made salvation possible for everyone, but actual only for those who add to it a response of faith and repentance that was not secured by it. So he says the choices were either an atonement of unlimited efficacy but limited extent, that would be particularism, which marked particular Baptists, etc., or one of unlimited extent but limited efficacy, which that's hypothetical universalism, or unlimited efficacy and extent. And he says when we decide between those, Scripture has to guide and so that's the ultimate challenge here for us. And so when I say to folks, I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm, I'm simply saying I want, I want you to think through these things, not just emotionally. I want you to think through these things scripturally. I really want you to dig in what the, what the Bible says. If somebody were to ask me, so what was kind of a tipping point for you in, in perceiving this or, or identifying with this or saying, okay, this is what I believe the scriptures teach, I would say really for me it was studying the Gospel of John. Um, people sometimes will point, well, you must have derived this from just your perception of your particular bent on Revelation 8 and 9 or 8, 9, and 10, or maybe Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, um, or maybe contemporary writing, you know, that sort of thing. I say, no, really for me, it was the big picture of what I see unfolding in the Gospel of John. So I, you know, I would say, and Charles, let me just walk through this just real quickly. So, you know, put on your seatbelt and, <laughs> and I want you to stick with me for a moment because I want you to follow really what, I'm, what I want you to see here for a second and, and consider for yourself. I think that Scripture speaks of God as having chosen for salvation a great number of people. I mean, we do see the word many again and again, and he sent Christ into the world to procure that salvation. So Christ comes in the Gospel of John, to me, clearly on a mission to achieve the salvation of those that God had chosen for him, given to him. And so we see some of these statements, like in John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For me, that gives just a lot of balance. Here's the mission of Christ. Here's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this. And here's the assurance to us. So I said something at the end of the message, Charles, it may have been confusing to some. Well, if you believe that the atonement is specific to some, but not universal to all, then how can you say that everyone who wants to be saved will be? Because Jesus said that. Whoever comes to me, he says, I'll never cast out. Your confidence in the gospel is this, if you're listening to what I'm saying, is not that I, I'm, I must be elect. I think I'm elect. Your confidence is, have you come to Christ in faith with repentance and belief? Because if you have, Jesus says, I'll never cast you out. Not only that, I'll receive you and I'll raise you up on the last day. I'll take you to myself. I'll save you. And that's that salvation will be forever. But again, so here's this picture. I'm coming to do the mission, John chapter 6. You get to John chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus makes this statement. Now think about this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I think sometimes we read that text and unintentionally read it in reverse. People become a sheep because they follow him. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll follow me, and I'll give my sheep eternal life. So again, the picture in the Gospel of John is Jesus, the great shepherd, coming for his sheep, and he will come and get them, the ones that the Father has given to him. So again, get down to John chapter 11, verse 51. 
Um, this was uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, talking. And you'll have to read, do a little background study, and you can do some in your study Bible and look this up, see the whole context of it. But Caiaphas is given a prophecy, and this is what he says, uh, John eleven fifty one. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now think about that phrase. Here's Jesus coming into the world to save a people, the people who are the children of God, his sheep, who will hear his voice and respond, but it's not just the people of Israel. They're scattered abroad. That's why Jesus would later say, you know, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, to me, consummate, um, theologically defining statement on this is Romans 8.28 and following. We know, we know this, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know everything ultimately works for good for us? How, how do we know this? Because of this, this, this salvation formula. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many, among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called... And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those things fit together. He, those whom he foreknew, he will ultimately glorify. So this whole chain works together. And so again, my, my point would be this, Charles, from the Gospel of John particularly, Christ dies for a particular group of people, persons, with the clear implication that his death actually accomplishes what he came to do. It does secure them. It does save them. So again, I, I'm reading from John chapter 10. This is verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, that they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Um, John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, just as I said. And when you get to Revelation chapter 1, also written by John, and we see John writing this letter to the seven churches, and it says that he, Jesus, freed us from our sins by his blood. He made us a kingdom, priest to God the Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And when we sing worshiping him in Revelation chapter 5, worthy of you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. To me it looks final. To me it looks like he did it. He accomplished it. And so, and here's the last kicker for me from the Gospel of John. When Jesus is facing his death in John chapter 17, and Jesus is praying to the Father, you know, this is the most famous prayer of Jesus. Uh, we call it the high priestly prayer. Who is he praying for? He's praying for the ones the Father had given him, not for the whole world at large. Listen to what he says. Um, this is John 17, verse 9 and following. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I do not ask for these only, he says down in verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There's a specific group of people. And so my point is this, and I agree with J.I. Packer on this point. Is it conceivable that he would decline to pray for anyone whom he intended to die for? So definite redemption or particular redemption, is right, or as I said in Sunday's message, actual redemption is really the only one of the three views that harmonizes with the biblical text. It's really all in the Gospel of John. And so I think that's really the clincher for me. Can I answer all the nuances of that? I can't. Um, can, can I answer every objection? I can't. But I cannot escape the clear sense that Jesus came on a particular mission and was successful in his mission and declared it to be so and returned to the Father. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't theoretical, or at least the atonement was not theoretical. Obviously, the atonement, I mean, the crucifixion was obviously historical, actual, but I mean, the work of the crucifixion, the intent of it wasn't just potential or theoretical. It was actual. He did it. He secured for himself a people known to himself. He did it. He succeeded. And I believe my statement would be this, and, and I certainly welcome this agreement. I don't enjoy it, but I'm okay with it. Um, those for whom Jesus died will be with him forever. That That's his intent. So that's my take, kind of in summary. So with that, you know, I guess uh, one of the big objections or uh, thoughts that you get to, if you if you if you really study this and look at it, is the is the idea of determinism. You know, that's the uh, the idea that the, the the I guess the definite nature, if you look at it in that way, of someone's salvation being based on God's call to their life. And so, but then again, I see you in sermons. And even yesterday, right alongside of this, making the imploring us as as the people of God to be sharing the gospel with everyone in our path. So, so help help us once again see how those two things fit together. And it's not determinism, I guess is my point. Yeah, I'm going to take a stab at this. Um, my best shot at this is I think we have to be really careful that we don't separate um, the means from the ends. That we that we don't lose all the other implications and nuances. And, and there are many statements of Scripture, and they all do fit together. And so we're not taking some out of context and just proof texting certain things. We're looking at the, the entire picture of Scripture. And when we do, and again, I hope this will make sense in short order, if we believe, like if someone would ask me, okay, Paul, so what's your doctrine of salvation? In the simplest nutshell, I would say salvation is of the Lord. So that in the end, um, the verse that just grips me more than any other, I mean, the one that just, just grabs my heart is going to be Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to open Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So that's, I mean, that's the hook I'm hanging everything on the wall. Yeah, that God is working everything according to the purpose of His will, so that in the end, for all eternity, all of my salvation will be to the praise of His glory. And you hear me saying some of those things repetitively, maybe sometimes. I will not be in heaven saying, "Thank you, God, for making me smart enough to discern between all these systems of belief and faith." Thank you, God, for um, for my pursuit of you. Thank you, God, for you know. I'm going to say, God, for the praise. For the praise of your glory is this grace. Now, back to your question on determinism. So I have to also say, if God is sovereign, he's working out everything in accordance to the purpose of his will, then providentially, in ways that I can see and can't see, he, he's working and moving. Sometimes that's perceptible. Often, maybe more often than not, it's imperceptible. So that means that God is working in circumstances in my life and the lives of people that I care about so that they're more receptive to the gospel, so that they're able to hear um, God's putting people in place that will just echo that gospel message. I, I would say for most people, I have no statistics on this, I have no data, but I would suggest that most people today have probably heard the gospel many times before they respond. Mm -hmm. But what is that difference? What's the difference maker for that one time where all of a sudden it captures the heart? All of a sudden the mind has changed. All of a sudden the, the will is drawn. I'm going to give credit, and I think they will too, ultimately to Christ. But in their own perception, they may say, you know, I was just broken. I was needy. I finally got it. Or someone finally explained it to me. Or finally I could see that someone loved me and cared about me enough. But again, back to the determinism, I would say God is sovereign in means and ends. And what has God commanded us to do? To pray. To pray. So we would be, we would be disobedient 
to the means in which God intends to draw people to himself if we're not praying for them. We, and again, I hope, and I'm speaking specifically to Calvary folks, but if you're listening, of course, great, um, too, if this helps you in your church. But I want Calvary folks to see we do practice what we believe. You know, we do pray for lost people. We're praying, we're praying for our mission partners and the mission fields and unreached people groups. We're praying for our community. We're praying, as, just as we pray this morning in our staff time, we're praying that God would save people yeah. during this holiday season through the preaching of the gospel, save children and, and young adults and, and adults and senior adults and across the whole span. So prayer. But also we know, and this is what Romans chapter 10 is about, we have to be obedient because how will they call on him of whom they've never heard? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? And how will someone tell them unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? And so, no, we believe that I can't tell you the mechanism of it all and how God will accomplish his ultimate purposes. I do know that God runs in his lane faithfully. I've got to run in mine. And my lane to run in is to be obedient, to pray for the lost and to give the gospel. And so I would say for us, that means we learn how to persuade. So um, we teach things like apologetics. Mm -hmm. How do I speak to my culture? How do I speak to the challenge of it? You need to learn to persuade. I, I think we need to challenge people in their emotions and their, their presentation to plead with people. Plead with people for their salvation. Plead with your family members, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter. Plead with them for the sake of eternity that they would follow Christ. And I think we need to be constantly uh, just proclaiming the truth. This, this is who Christ is. We keep telling this so that people can hear it and respond to it. You know, just like this, Charles, and this may be a little redundant for people who've been here, but it's like we're doing this Nicene Creed. It may seem kind of odd um, that that would be a, a message series on Sunday nights, but we're doing this as a reminder to people, you've got to guard the gospel. And the Nicene Creed was ultimately about guarding the gospel. Proclaim these things about Christ so that people believing these things um, can be saved by them. So that, that that really is the challenge here. Yeah, so, you know, back to our other, I guess, theological conversation we've had, we, we, we don't have a lot of those in here, but we do have some. The last one was on God's providence, and I think that's what you're pointing to, that, you know, when we talked about prayer, to me they just dovetail so well together between the means of, of what we pray in, in our lives, the things going on and all those kind of things, but we still work in our life. The same thing with salvation. We, we know it comes from God, but in his providence, he's given us people around us to share the gospel with and us to share it with them and, and uses all of that in his purposes to save his people. And if you wrongly identify all that as just determinism, then you might come with the wrong conclusion. If, if it's all predetermined or mechanistic, then why pray? And I would say, okay, you've got the wrong version of, of God's providence. I would say, why would you pray to a God who did not have the ability to answer your prayers? If God is not sovereign, then why pray? That, you, you see what I'm saying? That's yeah. the opposite of, well, if God's sovereign, why should I pray? No, no, no. Because God is sovereign, I, I pray. And I can remember some tough conversations with folks about lost people in their own families that they really care about. And so their conclusion sometimes, and I think it's a, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what we're actually saying here. The conclusion is, well, I guess my son or my daughter, they're not elect men. No, no, no. That's that's never our concern. That's not, and we, we're never presenting the gospel. When you don't see any gospel presentation given in Scripture, you don't see any open invitation to follow Christ in Scripture saying, for the elect you come. It is an open message of the gospel, proclamation of Christ to all who will believe and receive it and respond to it. But knowing that God is sovereign, that to me gives me some confidence that when I'm speaking to them, God's going to accomplish a purpose here. His word will not return to him void. It may not be now, and it may not be through me. It may not be through this church, 
But God can do what God chooses to do. He will do it. So let's just keep praying. Let's keep seeking him. Let's keep sharing. You know, let's not stop. Let's not let's not give up. So for me, and again, that was another clincher. I was going to mention some of these books at the end, but um, one of the books I've given away most in, in my life probably is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, because I think he does just such a great job of wedding these two together. For those who think, wait, what you're saying just shuts down evangelism. No, no, it does the opposite. It empowers it. Yeah. Because now I can go with confidence and say, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to I'm speaking to a group of people in India, or I'm speaking to a group of people down at the harbor, or I'm speaking in Kenya, or, or I'm speaking to the student ministry, or whatever it may be, or the kids are in vacation Bible school, and I can trust that God can God does things in people's hearts that transcend what I'm going to do. God has, and He promises to do that. He promises to do that through the declaration of His Word. So, I think that's important for us to understand. Yeah, one of the you know the beautiful part of that also when you think look in Scripture is how is we as the church we all play our own part in in every in in bringing someone to the Lord. It's not just a one person conversation, you know, and and so that's such a beautiful part of this also that I may not have a a part at the end. I may have a part at the beginning, but all those conversations we add together, God uses those and weaves them into what he wants to do. Yeah. And then that goes back to things we've talked about with just the role of the church too, that the whole church is part of this process. And so ideally at, at Calvary, if somebody comes to Christ, we can say, thank God for the testimony of the church, the work of the church, someone who loved them, someone who cared for them, someone who served them, someone who prayed for them, uh, someone who answered questions for them, Someone who shared the gospel with them and multiple, you know, all those things. It's just all part of that community that we can look and say, it's not just one or two super evangelists. It's, it's God at work through his people and, and look what God is doing. Yeah. Uh, well, one more thing before we go uh, this time, uh, last night you actually mentioned in your, in your message about that we all should be able to um, give a one minute presentation of the gospel as you explain the gospel. And, and so um, we've also had a, a, one of our listeners ask for that. So I thought I'd give you a chance in short order, just to, um, if someone comes to you and wants to know what the gospel is, what's your one minute testimony to that? Oh, let me give it to you in a couple of different ways. I mean, if I've got just seconds to to give a definition, I'm going to use one that we've shared with folks come through membership over the years. Um, it basically is just a statement. Re- remember what I said last night. There's a difference between what is the content of the gospel and what is the plan of salvation. Yeah. And when we talk about plan of salvation, that's not the gospel per se. That's a person's response to it. So we, so there's really kind of two parts to the question. What is the gospel and what should people do with it? We should call people to respond to it. If they're ready to respond to it, we can give them a what we would call a plan of salvation. Yeah. But the statement that we've given over and over is the gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked down on hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever and, and enjoy him forever. And I think that's the essence of the gospel. But I'll tell you, um, that's just the beginning. You know, I thought about that when I said that last night. And let me clarify I think everybody ought to have a, an understanding of the, of the critical components of the gospel. We talked about this from 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ who came, Christ who died, Christ who was raised, Christ who ascended to the Father, Christ who will return. And I think gospel really ultimately includes those things. And so we need to have maybe several different, not versions, but um, links of, of gospel that we can share. Because it, it forever deepens. And the more mm-hmm. time that you have, the more that you can explain, the more that you can give. And 
you know, I was reading something about this, and I know he's a little bit maligned sometimes um, by folks in our camp, but I really like some of the things that, that Tim Keller wrote um, on his treatment of the gospel. And I, I like this beginning, although I think he leaves out something a little bit at the beginning, which I'll hit, that he starts really with beginning with folks with, with their condition. Um, what's bad news? Because the idea of the gospel replaces, the gospel hope replaces the bad news reality that we're in. And so he starts with that. The bad news is that we're separated from God. Um, somebody had asked me after the message, so when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, should I tell to them, Jesus died for your sins? I, I would say that that is a, that's a second, that's, that's not your lead off with the gospel. I think you can rightly say, because the Bible speaks of God's love for the world. Look, God loves you. God does not desire your death. God does not desire your suffering. Um, and if you will place your faith and trust in what he's done for you in Christ, then his death on the cross is sufficient to take away all your sins. See what I'm saying? It's the effect mm-hmm. of, your, of that response. But here's what Keller said. He says, you know, the bad news is we're all separated from God. This, the evidence of this is that we try to save ourselves. And he talks about the different ways that we try to do that. But that all of us have looked to many things besides God. We've rejected God as being God, personally, collectively. And he talks about the brokenness that brings the world. And I think that's important. Why are we separated from God in the first place? Um, God in creation made mankind in this world as he intended it to be. Sin enters into the world, et cetera, what we were created to know and do and how we lost that and then how the gospel responds to that. But I'll tell you one little tool that I think is super helpful, and I'm going to summarize it here for the sake of those who are listening. This is um, based on a resource that we actually provide at the end um, end of our services in our next steps table. Yeah. Um, Greg Gilbert, little book. We give them out. And so... Um, you're welcome to take one. And if we need to reorder more so you can give them to people, then you you do that. The, the title of the book is What is the Gospel? And this is derived from Greg Gilbert's little book, What is the Gospel? But also from some work that Randy Pope put together. Randy was the founding pastor of Perimeter Church in Atlanta. He he did a uh, evangelism seminar here in the Wiregrass at First Prez early this year. So shout, uh, shout out to First Prez and Randy Pope for leading out evangelism there. But it, he really summarizes this in, in four terms, um, four categories. God. Start the gospel with God. God the creator, God who made it all, the uh, creator of heavens and earth. Everything belongs to him. Everything's under authority to him, who mankind is. Start the gospel with God who made us and how he made us, why he made us, the relationship he created with us, the world he created us to live in. Start with the supreme sovereignty of God, maker of heaven and earth, and the goodness of God in creation. God is ruler over everything and how he designed us to live in that way in perfect relationship with him under his good rule. That's the beginning point. Um, And that answers the question, why are we here? We're here to know God. I mean, your ultimate purpose is to know God, to experience God, to thrive under God, his good rule. And then from God, transition to sin. And the way... Randy and Greg put it, is in sin, we think of God who made it all. We think of sin, we lost it all. What did we lose when we sin? Well, start with what is sin. You know, any thought, motive, deed, going against God's rule as king. We rejected God as king. Yeah. Um, you know, so Adam and Eve, their moral perfection lost in the garden. Everything ensues from that, every sort of brokenness. When we talk about brokenness in the world, why is the world like it is? Um, why am I like I am? Um, 
this rebellion against God has affected everything, not just my relationship with God. It's affected my relationship with creation, with, with people, um, with myself. What's the penalty for that? Death. And not just that I would die physically, but ultimately, we know the Bible says it's ultimate, it's ultimate spiritual death and ultimate eternal punishment. What's the problem? Sin. We lost everything when we sinned, and there's nothing we can do about that to undo it. We can't fix that. And so back to things Keller said, our struggle is we've been trying to save ourselves ever since. We've been trying to fix it. God made it all. In sin, we lost it all. But the good news that replaces that bad news of our current condition is that Christ comes in and does everything that's necessary to redeem it all, to fix it all, to repair it all. So again, because we sinned, we now face judgment from God. Everyone, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only standing we'd have in front of that perfect God is to be sinless, and we're not. And so what will we do when we stand before God? We must have a substitute. Jesus is that substitute. And then you start telling the story of the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15. God came into the world. He was not a sinner like us. Um, he, he was born by the a work of the Holy Spirit given to the Virgin Mary. He did not have our sin nature. He lived perfectly. He was tempted, but he never sinned. He died as a substitute for our sins to be punished for us. He was raised for us. And we tell the story that God in Christ was offering redemption. He fulfills all of God's um, expectations. He lives perfectly for us. He takes on all of our punishment. God is able to remain just because all of our sins are punished on Christ, and he offers life. So that's the solution. Jesus does everything God requires for us to be saved, and there's nothing we can add to it. So that's where we get the term grace. This is a gift of God. It's, it's all of grace, not works. And so you tell that story, God, sin, and Christ. Hmm. To me, that's the gospel. Now, that's not the plan of salvation. That's where you would go to. What's, what's your response to this? How do you get this? How do you receive the benefits from this? You know, God's not telling you, hey, shape up. Yeah. Fix your life up. Um, you know, you need to get things in order. Um, come to Christ. No, he's inviting you to come with humility to Christ and say, God, forgive me, a sinner, um, to turn away from my own sin and my own authority and self-rule and surrender to Christ and accept the work of Christ for me. And so admitting our sin, acknowledging our powerlessness to do anything about it, embracing Jesus as our substitute, and ultimately surrendering our life to the King. So Jesus, rule and reign in my life. Um, you're the risen King. And, and I think that fits, too, with the, with the kingdom gospel that you hear us teaching all the time. Jesus came into the world and said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent, believe the gospel. Make Jesus King of your life. So if that helps, that would kind of be, that's kind of the summary I would do. If somebody gave me a couple minutes... I would start there. I would start with God and the goodness of God and the intent of God, including the creation of man. Then I would talk about the ruination of sin and all its many effects, personally and collectively. And then I would talk about the sole means of redemption, fixing everything. Me and the world that we live in is Christ and accepting his rule and joining his kingdom. And how do I do that? I do that with repentance and faith. And so that, that is where I would go with the gospel. And I would offer that to anyone to everyone, and, and pray that God in His sovereignty would work in their minds and their hearts and pray that they would respond. And I would try to persuade them, and I would try to answer their questions, and I would try to plead with them emotionally. And, you know, I would do whatever I could to to affect their response, but I would trust in the work of God ultimately. Yeah, and um, we've mentioned it a couple of times that, you know, we have a resource center, obviously, down uh, in the Rock, the Rock Lobby area, uh, where our open classes meet on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and uh, we would love for you to Stop by, see some of those resources, some books down there that uh, 
go deeper into this subject of the atonement of, of salvation. Uh, but also there's tracks down there. We have, uh, we have gospel tracks. We'd love for you to pick up some of those. They're free to you to take with you and, um, just, uh, take and use them. Use, uh, if you need something to help prompt you as, as actually, uh, pastor Paul, you know, as he spoke through that had something in front of him to prompt him, you know, it's not that he had every bit of that, uh, in his, in his, in his mind, uh, at a time. He just uses those as prompts. That's a great thing to use as you give the gospel presentation. So come see what those tracks and are. And good apps them. too, you know, just something oh, yeah. you have handy that you can just sit there and work with someone and, and show them the scriptures. You know, that's something I didn't mention there, Charles, which I think is a good point. You know, there's power in the scriptures. Yeah. You know, I think if you, if you're using a gospel track, I know that seems kind of old school, but it puts the scriptures in front of somebody and it gives you something to put in their hands, just like this little uh, pamphlet that you're referencing here that I've got. Um, but also there's some good gospel tracks. We're going to be doing some training too in, in the new year and in in some of our open classes that we'll be doing some evangelism training. And there's just, there's some good means and, and there's not one that necessarily is the one, but I think having some means that you feel comfortable with having something that you feel like confident, I can explain that I'm not stumbling and bumbling my way through. Uh, Justin just mentioned those Evangia cubes. I remember going on a mission trip with Evangia cube the size of a of a basketball or a beach ball, <laughs> and uh, man, all I did was confuse myself trying to flip through that thing, and it felt like I was doing a Rubik's cube with a time limit. Um, but anyway, find something that you're good or helpful with. And, and Charles, let me say this too on this point, and, and maybe this will be helpful in your life group discussions as well. What I'm telling you is what I believe the scriptures teach, and this is my view of scripture. Um, I do have a general disdain for categories because I think they can be misleading. And even in the vein of what people would call Calvinism, et cetera, and there's so many interpretations and so many takes and so many variances and, and so many just disparities. And so there's high Calvinists and mid-Calvinists and low Calvinists and pe people all in between. Listen, the labels tend not to be helpful. I, I, I want to be faithful to the scriptures the best that I can. At the same time, I recognize if my Methodist uh, – roommate from college who's uh who's a successful godly pastor if he were listening to my podcast today so james i don't know if you're listening you know he's he's going to disagree with me on things like particular atonement or definite atonement the critical issue is i think not so much that we would agree on every jot and tittle but the critical issue is are we obedient are we faithful to the gospel um and that really is a challenge and, and i will tell you um what strikes my ire just a little bit on either side of the debate or any debate or any point in between, people who love to debate theology but don't engage in gospeling, yeah. then it doesn't really matter what you believe. It, yeah. it really doesn't matter what you believe about the sovereignty of God or the sufficiency of, of the atonement or Arminianism or Calvinism or anything. It, it doesn't really matter. If you're not engaging with people, imploring them, you're thinking about our defining verses of church. We are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, you know, so we implore you, be reconciled to God. If you're not doing that, really, and th theology is a waste, and there's nothing worse than cold theology. So, be active about the gospel, but be, you know, also study those things. But again, I come back to Ephesians 1, 12 and thirteen. That's just that's where I hang my hat to the praise of His glory. I, I want every part of the salvation that I proclaim, and I believe what we'll be celebrating through all eternity is God in, in ways we could never have imagined or seen, but maybe we'll see in eternity. Look what you did. Look what you did to save me. Thank you, God, for saving me a sinner. Yeah, and, and uh, the conversations I've had from the last two weeks of sermons and uh, with folks, it's just been that exact thought when they left there was just a bigger view of who our God is, just a higher view of the goodness 
and the sovereignty of God has come out of these messages. So I appreciate uh, you spending the time studying and being ready to uh, give us something a little bit different at Christmas. You know, we're not looking at the uh, the Luke 2 story, uh, so to speak, but just such a, a powerful uh, place uh, to to spend our time on Sunday morning. So I hope everybody will be here this coming Sunday for uh, for the rest or the, the next uh, couple of verses in Isaiah. Yeah. Absolutely. God bless. All right. So uh, thanks for being with us, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, Remember, if you have uh, questions for us, just drop us an email at podcast at calvarydothan.com, and we would love to uh, spend some time talking about whatever you would like for us to talk about. Let me drop a commercial in there. All right. Go ahead. Since that, since we are talking about things people want to talk about, uh, we did get a request also. Someone asked um, in their discussions with their small group about the reliability of Scripture. And so we've got a meaty one coming on that. Uh, we we sat down with uh, with Mike Lycona, uh, Dr. Mike Lycona's professor at Houston Christian University, written a number of books on Scripture and and the New Testament. He's a professor of New Testament studies, and so um, he's going to be dropping some some serious knowledge on folks. Um, and we'll probably be sharing that in our next podcast. Yeah, so look forward to that next week. So, um, but once again, uh, we are for God, for Dothan, and for the world. 